welcome to CCBJ Perspectives podcast, providing access to leaders and influencers within the ever-evolving ecosystem of lawyers and legal professionals. Today, our guests are Maria Eberly and Lucy Fado. Maria is a managing partner with Baker McKenzie, practicing in the firm's tax group in New York. She serves as chair of the SALT practice group and also as a member of the North America Tax Practice Group Management Committee. She advises multinational companies on a full range of state and local tax matters, including tax controversy and litigation. Maria has been recognized by the International Tax Review in their annual Women in Tax Leaders Guide. Lucy leads AIG's global legal compliance and regulatory groups. She is also head of communications and government affairs, overseeing AIG's internal and external communications, public policy and sustainability efforts. Before joining AIG, she was managing director, head of Americas and general counsel of Nardello, where she remains on the advisory board. In both 2015 and 2017, Lucy was recognized by the Ethisphere magazine as one of the attorneys who matter for her dedication to, to furthering corporate ethics. Today with Lucy and Maria, we'll discuss commitment to diversity, the need for inclusion at every level of, of a corporation, and the value of a nonlinear career path. Um, it's a pleasure to have you both with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedules. Happy to be here. Also very happy to be here. In our preparation for this episode, we had an extensive discussion which began with the notion of sacrifice. The idea being that a commitment to change is different than talking the talk or checking the boxes. And that to enact genuine change, there needs to be a long range plan with sustainable tactics and goals. Let's talk about how that looks from your perspectives and respective organizations. Lucy, did you wanna lead off on that one? Sure, I'd be happy to. And thank you for having me today. Very pleased to be here to talk about this important topic. Uh, I completely agree with how you uh, introduced this, uh, Kristen. Um, having skin in the game, having real commitment and really trying to make meaningful and lasting change is something that takes time and effort um, and a real commitment. And I think we've seen many examples over the years where people have gone through exercises and they've talked a lot about making certain changes, trying to promote more women into board seats or leadership positions, um, number of other similar types of initiatives but at the end of the day, when you look back and actually measure people on how well they've done, the statistics are not great. And I think it's because there's a lot of talk and not always a lot of action behind that talk. And one of the things we're trying to do at AIG and something I've always tried to do throughout my career is not just talk about an issue, but actually take action make demonstrable change and be willing to be held accountable for that. And that I think is critical, holding people accountable because what gets measured gets done. So if all you do is talk about things and you're not actually measured and you're not actually held accountable, it's eventually just gonna peter out. So I think on you know the issues that we're talking about today around diversity and inclusion and equity and pay equity. Uh, these are things that require a lot of thought 
a lot of resources and real commitment. And the way I think you get there and what is critical for an organization to do is to make it a strategic business imperative. The same way a CEO may say, I, I'm gonna grow revenues by X. We're gonna become, you know, our margin's gonna move from X to Y. We're gonna do X million in share buybacks every year. So our return on equity will be X percent. So when a CEO is held accountable in terms of compensation and other rewards for achieving strategic priorities, you tend to see a lot of action because it's not, it's important that the, that the CEO, the board, the tone at the top be right. But when there are strategic business imperatives that the leadership is talking about in an organization, people get behind it and resources are put to it. Money is spent in order to achieve those goals. And so if you have DNI just be this sort of soft issue on the side that's done by say your HR department, but it's not really a strategic imperative and spoken about as such by the leadership of the company, you're just not going to, to get the same results. Yeah, and I'm happy to, to add some comments on that too, Lucy, because I thought that was just so well said. I mean, I think the idea of having skin in the game is really, really important. And I think that we've talked about this very, very much within our organization, that it's not just about filling a quota or putting a check in a box, right? It is so much more than that, right? So if you decide that you have a true commitment to diversity and inclusion, that means that you are truly open to diverse perspectives, um, thinking and new ways of doing things. And I think that it's very important, and, and I think it's something that we have taken very seriously at our firm, it is very, very important that we make it central to what we do, how we do our business, how we interact with one another, and how we interact with our clients. And, you know, I think this example comes up quite often, you know, which is, you know, and I remember seeing this when I was younger, where you see someone that says, you know what, you're right, we need some diversity and inclusion, we're going to put a woman on X committee, right? Putting a woman on X committee is not what we're talking about. We're talking about giving underrepresented groups a voice, putting them not just on the committee, right? But giving them a voice on that committee. And that means more than one, right? Having just one person that's diverse on a, on a committee, again, checking that box, that's not what's gonna make the difference. What's gonna make the difference is saying, not only am I putting you there, I'm gonna listen to what you have to say, I'm gonna give you the voice. And I think giving the voice and seeing how committed organizations are to DNI now, right? And seeing all these sort of, general counsels, from my perspective, come out and say how important it is to their organization, how important it is to the procurement process. I think that's all also made it very clear to global law firms that we need to get our act together, right? We need to do better because our clients are demanding it from us. And not only should we do it because our clients are demanding it from us, it's because we also recognize, right, that there is an implicit value to having diversity and to living, living, not just saying, but actually living inclusivity, being inclusive. Thank you both. I agree with both of your remarks on that. And I think that one of the things that I've seen get lost along the way is the, the human factor in, in these issues. So diversity rankings, diversity reporting, um, diversity awards, you know, they're, the people seem to get lost often in that type of consideration about 
diversity within an organization and the impact that it can have. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Um, this is Lucy speaking. You know, the reason to have inclusion uh, or an inclusive environment and a diverse environment is because you get better results. There are many, many studies that show that diverse teams perform better. And I don't think it takes a genius to figure out why. You know, we live in a complex world. We all deal with complex issues. The global economy is, especially now in coronavirus, is, you know, challenging. And so to think that you're going to put a group of people together that all have the same background, all think alike, all have the same kind of uh, work experience, and, and think you're going to solve the complex problems of the future is just nuts. I mean, you need to bring voices to the table that have different perspectives, whether it's from different geographies, different backgrounds, different types of educations, uh, different degrees, racial diversity, gender diversity, ethnic diversity. I mean, the world is diverse. And so to solve the problems of the world and to solve the problems that your company may be facing or your law firm may be facing, the notion that people that all think the same way are somehow going to come up with something new or something different or something creative is just unrealistic. I, I, I mean, it's just not the way the world operates anymore. And we all see the statistics about who goes to business school, who goes to law school, who goes to college. You know, they're very diverse groups coming out of these educational institutions. And so if you don't have diversity at the table, like th that is, that's intentional. I mean, you have to work hard nowadays to not have diversity at the table because there is so much great talent out there. I mean, we've actually heard some CEOs come out and say, well, of course, I'd love, like to have more diversity. I just haven't been able to find qualified candidates. I mean, that's just wrong. It's just dead wrong. It means you're not looking in the right places or you're being lazy about your recruiting. You don't have an open mind. You're defaulting to your comfort zone. But the reason to have a diverse workforce is because you get better outcomes. You get more thoughtful outcomes. And in most industries, people are demanding it. You know, I'm a general counsel. I'm demanding it of the, the law firms and other third parties that, that we work with at AIG. Our clients are corporations who buy insurance from us. You know, they, they want to know what kind of diversity, you know, we have. When we go to recruit for senior level executives or board members, they want to know what our diversity looks like. You know, good luck recruiting really good diverse people if you have no diversity, because people won't take you seriously on the issue. And it goes to that point of just, you know, really being committed to it. You know, great talent attracts, attracts great talent. And if you want to attract great diverse talent, you need to have great diverse talent. So you're just, I, I don't think you're doing what's in the best interest of your organization, um, whether it's a law firm or a corporation or some other institution, if you're not looking for the best people. And, and if you look for the best people, by definition, you will, you will have diverse people at the table. 
that's a great question. And I think it picks up on so many of the themes in what Lucy was just saying, which is that, you know, sometimes, right, when we're challenged to think about why we can't find diverse team members or diverse candidates or whatever it is, it's simply because we've gotten a little bit lazy or complacent, right? Humans are creatures of habit. We just are, right? So we stick with what's comfortable to us, right? Because the unexpected or things that are different make us a little bit nervous, right? Um, and I would say that in building teams, you need to be challenging yourself to actually take yourself to the point where you are starting to feel a little bit nervous. You're starting to feel like you're taking a little bit of a risk because you have to realize that this is a calculated smart risk. Because as what Lucy said before, success based on diversity is common sense. This is not complicated, tricky stuff, right? It is so clear that when you bring in different perspectives, you will get better results because everyone that is exactly the same, exactly the same socioeconomic background, ge geographical background, whatever it is, they're going to think of things pretty much the same exact way. But if you speak to somebody that is different in any way, shape or form, even if it's a slight difference, someone without kids versus someone with kids, right? Small differences, someone who likes to ride bikes, someone who doesn't, right? That produces just a different perspective in how you look at things, right? How they see the world and how the world sees you. It helps in pitching new client opportunities, right? Because again, creativity, who wants, we want the best, you know, we don't just want diversity because we want diversity. We know that if we ask for a diverse team, we're actually going to get the best. We're going to get the best. We're going to get the most creative ideas. We're going to get the best of the best stuff that this firm, my firm has to offer. Right. And so I think in terms of, you know, in terms of choosing those teams, I encourage everyone to push yourself to that point where you're saying, oh, wow, I'm going for someone that I wouldn't normally partner with. This may make me a little uncomfortable, right? But think about why it's making you uncomfortable. It's, is it because, fine, they don't, you don't like the quality of their work? Well, that's a different issue. But is it because they're slightly different than you are? And I think that if you look within yourself and think about why it might make you uncomfortable, right? Or it's something about them that's not exactly the same as you. They do it different, right? They have a different style even, right? Challenge yourself. Challenge yourself to push yourself beyond what you feel is comfortable to you, because I guarantee you, it will produce results and you're going to get to a different level within yourself that it becomes a natural part of who you are, right? I can look at a recent example for me. I pulled together a diverse team pitching for a large post-acquisition integration project in 37 countries, right? So off the bat, I'm lucky because I'm guaranteed geographical diversity, right? Okay, fine. That wasn't the hard part, right? But when you looked at the team, I went for people I trust. Absolutely. Absolutely. But guess what? Because I've worked on this over the years, those people I trust are diverse, right? This is, this is something I'm really, really, really proud of, right? That I have looked to team members. I have forged relationships. I have pushed my boundaries, right? To choose people who look at things differently, that have a different style than I do, that like a different type of music that I do. It's all of those things. It makes things so much better. You have this intrinsic creativity. And what came across to the client was how well we looked together, right? How well we interacted. You know, we're on the Zoom together and they loved how we were smiling at one another and how we clearly had developed this, this bond right? But we were also very different if you were to look at us just objectively. Yeah. And I would, I completely agree with what Maria said. The other, the other thing I would add, you know, what I do with my team to encourage them in the recruiting process, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh. So I'm very familiar with the Rooney rule, which is the NFL rule that any major 
head coaching position needs to have, there has to be a diverse slate. Um, you obviously hire the best candidate for the job, um, but the slate has to be diverse and the people who are interviewed have to be diverse. And so in all of my positions, since I've been an in-house lawyer, I've always followed that Rooney, Rooney rule and I've encouraged my direct reports to follow the Rooney rule. And I require that they think about um, ways to have a diverse slate of candidates. And what that often means is going outside of the insurance industry. A lot of people default to, well, we need a lawyer to do X, Y, Z. It would be great if they had industry expertise. Well, insurance, sadly, is not known for having a lot of diversity. It's just a legacy historical industry that has, has not had a lot of diversity, particularly in the senior ranks. Um, and so if you just stick with insurance companies, you know, you're not gonna necessarily find a lot of diversity. So I've encouraged my team, like, why do they need insurance company? If they're smart, you know, insurance experience, if they're smart, they'll figure it out. We'll train them, we'll teach them. But, you know, if you, if you take a great lawyer out of a financial institution, a bank, for example, other large global complex companies that are highly regulated, there are a lot of common themes in what we do as lawyers where it doesn't necessarily matter if you know insurance. And so when I got people to start thinking out of the box, the slate started to become not only diverse in terms of gender and racial diversity, but diverse in terms of people's experiences. And as I said before, that's important too. People that maybe, you know, at AIG, we're going through a big turnaround in one of our businesses. Hire someone who was at a company that went through a big turnaround. Didn't matter that it wasn't insurance. They had people issues, regulatory issues. They had to help their you know, IT department negotiate new big contracts as they transform their IT, all those skills are relevant. So when you think outside the box and you stop defaulting to your comfort zone and you require people to put forward a diverse slate, you cast a wider net. And by casting a wider net, you inevitably, inevitably find a lot of really good candidates. And what I have found is then we often struggle in picking who we're going to hire because we often have two or three finalists that are all really, really good because we really cast a wide net. So I think being open-minded, you know, not staying within your comfort zone and really just thinking about roles more broadly and not pigeonholing people like, oh, you do this kind of insurance or you do this kind of contract work. You know, I find that lawyers, especially lawyers that have been practicing, you know, for um, eight, 10, 12 years or more are very adaptable. Um, and sometimes, you know, and it sort of goes to the point you made it, uh, in the introduction about not having a linear career. You know, sometimes people want to do something different and learn something different. And it, it helps them on their path to becoming a general counsel or doing whatever else they may aspire to become someday. So I just, I think being open-minded and casting a wide net is really important. So I guess that begs the question about trust and bringing in people who may not execute on strategy or tactics the same way that, that you as a leader or any executive would. Um, what are some strategies for for one, checking yourself in recruiting or team development, 
or design, um, and also empowering your team to do the same thing, which essentially comes down to having a certain tolerance for risk. Um, if I bring Jim onto my team and he has a different, distinctly different style or a different risk threshold, um, how do I get comfortable with bringing people together who wouldn't, who wouldn't dot the I's and cross the T's the same way I would? This is Lucy. I'm happy to go first. So look, I, I do consider myself a change agent. For whatever reason, I have found myself in organizations that are undergoing a lot of change. Um, I, I didn't plan my career that way. It just so happened that that's what I found myself in. You know, companies who had had regulatory issues they were recovering from or turnaround situations. So I, I do think I've become a, a change agent. Um, I'm someone who's comfortable with change. I think organizations always need to be changing and evolving. So even if you haven't gone through a big sort of corporate event, I think it's important to constantly change and evolve. But the key to changing a culture on any issue, you have to have the support from the top. And you have to have the support of your, in my case, you know, being a general counsel, the CEO and a board of directors. If you don't have that support, it's very hard to affect change because tone at the top matters. It really, really matters. And if people look at the top of the house and they don't see the kind of diversity that they wanna see, or, or worse, they see no diversity, it's demoralizing. And no matter what you say, you're not going to have credibility. So if I, and, and this is not the case for me at AIG, I'm very, very fortunate. I've been working with people there who I respect and I trust and we're like-minded in terms of our values and we all believe in inclusion and diversity and equity. So I don't, fortunately, knock on wood, I do not have that issue. But, you know, I talk to a lot of people who do, you know, they want to affect change in their organization, but if they can't get the buy-in of the people at the very top of the house, it just doesn't have credibility and, and you're not able to make the kind of change and demonstrate the commitment in a credible way. And so I, I think you have to work on getting that commitment and try, and if you don't have it, it doesn't mean you're never gonna have it. It may just be that people need to be educated and you need to spend time and you need to talk to them about why these issues are important, why the company will be better, why the talent pool will get stronger over time, why your client base will be happier about you as an organization and select you over a competitor. And so there are ways to try to bring people around if you have to. Um, but I think for, for lawyers, it's, it's sometimes hard to be a change agent on your own. Now in a law firm, it's a different situation because it's a partnership and it's all lawyers. And so I'm sure you know, Maria can speak to that. It's a different dynamic than when you're in a corporation. Um, but I really believe that to be effective, you've got to get the people at the very top to buy in. And once you have the right tone at the top, then you have to get the right tone in the middle because that's where the hiring managers are. And that's where the people are who are you know, making most of the hiring decisions. And so it has to then move down throughout the entire organization. So tone at the top is great and it's table stakes, but it's only the beginning. 
you have to then get that, that tone to go all the way down throughout the entire organization. And that's the way you ultimately can move a company forward and make, you know, make change that's really impactful and meaningful and authentic. I couldn't agree more with what you just said, Lucy. And I, and I think it, it totally comes from the top down. Um, and I'll just add to that by giving maybe a recent example of something that I was a, was a part of. So, you know, we have a, a large North American tax practice and we get together every year for um, an annual conference. Um, and, you know, since I'm on the management committee this year, I was tasked with the women's event. Okay. Um, And a lot of organizations sort of have these things like, you know, groups or organizations or events dedicated to, right, underserved groups, right? So this is the women's event. I'm in charge of it. I'm the woman, of course, right? So um, I decided to shake it up a little bit this year, though, and invite men to the women's event. And this was done for several reasons, right? One is you can't effectuate change without getting the buy-in of those, everyone, right, that's in the organization organization. As much as we don't want to admit it, right, there are still a lot of men that are in power, right, in positions of power, whether they're in law firms or whether they're in house, wherever that is. And so for us to effectuate meaningful change, we've got to get all of the stakeholders to feel that they're included and actually a part of this change. And so we, we invited men to this event. And, you know, there was pros and cons, of course, right, that the cons are that sometimes we want to talk about issues that maybe are just women's issues, right? But then we would always hear people say, well, while we're doing that, the men are all out golfing or having dinner and going talking about business together while we're, you know, having our women's event. So we decided to buck the trend this year. And what I will tell you is that it was surprising when the uh, registration list came out. I thought, you know, maybe what I was going to have to do is, you know, call a bunch of the, you know, senior male partners and say, can you, I want you to attend. Can you attend? I didn't really have to do that because when the registration list came out, it was actually 65% men, 35% women, um, which I thought was quite interesting because I think it was very emblematic of the fact that at least we as an organization feel that we are taking interest in these issues. Um, And I think it's so, so important to set these types of examples, right? And again, as part of our annual event, we also wanted to celebrate Black History Month, something that was very, very, very important to us. We brought in, um, it was one of the most amazing things I had ever seen. We brought in a musical group from Howard University um, and they put on a sort of special show for us through Zoom, which you can't even imagine them being able to do something like that, quite frankly, remotely. I, I can't carry a tune with auto-tuning, right? But this was just unbelievable, right? Um, they did a few performances for us. We had them, a couple of the different musical group organizers sit on a panel and talk to us about their experiences on, you know, coming, you know, in musical experiences in life, right? What it's like to be a Black performer, what it feels like. And then we ended the program again with a beautiful musical performance. And when I tell you the entire group stayed on for that performance and there were people, there were people crying. There were people who were so moved and motivated by it, right? So it really is up to us. It is up to you know, leaders, it is up to the folks that have the power, that have the influence, that's where change really, really, really starts, right? And I I think it's so important, and I couldn't agree more, Lucy, with what you said. It's just, it's so important that it has to come from the top down. And I will tell you, you know, a lot of the women that attended the event and a lot of the other associates in the group that attended these events that I just discussed, they commented on the fact that all of these senior partners were there. So it makes a difference. It means something. It's these small little things that could actually effectuate change, and we just, we don't even realize it. Yeah, Maria, I absolutely agree with what you said. And I think the approach you took is just right. Um, I I tell people all the time that 
I think the reason that women have not made more progress in terms of board seats and C-suite seats that are CEOs, CFOs, P&L responsibility is because when women started pushing to get these roles, they tended to talk about it amongst themselves. You know, lots of organizations were created around women on boards, women CEOs. And, and while I love getting together with women, I do. I love, you know, women GC groups. I'm part of those. I'm part of general, general, uh, general counsel groups. Um, I love to do meetings um, with women and I love to support and help other women. But the reality is if all we do is talk amongst ourselves and not bring in the people who are often the decision makers, you know, we're just talking. And so bringing those allies in who have the power to make change is really, really critical. And so when you look at women over the last 20 years, you know, we kind of got stuck at around 20% on boards. There are very, very few women CEOs in the Fortune 500. And if you look at um, women of color, it's even worse. And, and I, what I tell my colleagues today, whether it's Black colleagues or the Latinx community or the Asian community, is it's great for you to create these sort of employee resource groups and, and, and other groups where people who are you know, from similar backgrounds come together to support each other. It's great. It's great to have that network and that support with people that you can really, you know, associate, you, you really have common backgrounds. And so you feel very comfortable with each other. But if you really want to start making progress in terms of increasing the numbers in senior leadership, you've got to identify who are the people that have the power. Um, often they still are white men and you have to bring them to the table and engage them in the conversation and have a way for them to get exposure to who the high potential talent is. And the one thing I found throughout my career, because most of my mentors, when I was a lawyer, um, at Davis Polk for 14 years before I went in-house, um, I would say virtually all of my mentors and sponsors were men, were white men. Um, and to this day, I have many, many, many men who still are some of my biggest supporters, my biggest allies. Um, women too, there are some women, but it's still largely men. And what I have found about men who have power is they like to use their power. They actually, they like to help other people and they like to help get people on a board, get people a general counsel role help someone move into a CFO role. And, and they don't, it, whether it's a man or a woman or a white person or a person of color, like if they've got that power to make something happen, it makes them feel good. So I just think it's a big miss if you don't draw them in and have them be part of the conversation and put people in front of them that they may not otherwise come across so that they see that there's this broader landscape because I do think most people want to do the right thing but they've just never they've just never either thought about it or they haven't had an opportunity to really engage with these diverse communities in a way that um, allows them to make uh, different kinds of decisions. So I'd like to take a shift here and I'll, I'll share with both of you that gosh I think four years ago, we started developing our leadership initiatives for, for women executives 
And we started with a program that Megan Belcher worked with me to design. And it was a, a webcast. It was very simple in terms of to have video or Zoom or breakout rooms. But we, we, had a, we had posted a webcast called Be the CEO of Your Own Career. And we talked with a number of executives and had a tremendous, tremendous uh, outpouring for registration. I think almost 400 people registered for that event. And again, this was four years ago. It was before everybody was on a webcast six hours a day. So the three of us have spoken about supporting others in their career development. And I think we should shift now to being your own advocate. Um, many executives seem to fall into roles. I'd like to hear your advice about career architecture and design. I'm happy to start this one. I mean, uh, this is something I'm so passionate about, which is it's so important that you're your own advocate. And the reason why I'm so passionate about it is it took me until now, and I, I joke and tell everyone I'm 27. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not 27. But had I been 27 now, boy, would I be so good at being 27. Unfortunately, I'm, I have a lot of experience um, that takes me well beyond that. But I think, you know, what I would say, I always say this to myself, you know, what would I tell myself if it was 15 years ago? I tell myself to be fearless. I tell myself to speak up for myself more and to say exactly what it is that you want. Do not be afraid to say what you want and what it is that you would like to achieve and how you'd like to achieve it. Um, and don't be afraid to try new things. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I've leaned into in my career the last couple of years is it, it isn't just about, you know, for me getting into this management role in the tax group, it's really about becoming different, right? So yes, I'm a tax lawyer, great, okay? That's what I do, it's my specialty, it's what I know. But I've also turned into more of a relationship partner, right? And what does that mean? That was a little scary for me because that meant I had to sort of now navigate, right? Different disciplines, different people in different groups, right? And, and really get outside of my comfort zone. So it wasn't just about anymore delivering really great tax work, right? Doing a really good job on these matters that I'm responsible for, but it was really much more about, you know, being sort of the, one of my clients jokes and says, the one throat to choke, right? The, the one that's got to know their business and organization in and out and is their advocate, right? That comes to them to ensure that budgets are met, that makes sure that the people who do the things that I don't, I'm not a technical expert on are doing them right, right? Asking the tough questions, managing that, right? That's very, very different than what I was air quote, trained for the first 15 years of my career, right, as I became an associate, senior associate partner to do. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it was scary at first. And it's quite frankly, sometimes still is scary, right? Because no matter how far we get into our lives, and no matter how great we are at what we do, from time to time, sometimes I still find myself saying, wait a minute, me? They want me? They're talking to me? Right. But it's, but that's okay. It's okay to have that feeling sometimes, but what's not okay is to fail to take the leap of faith. What's not okay is to just end up stuck in a specific role because you feel like that's the path, right? That you must, after you become an associate, then become a partner, then whatever. Right. I also bucked the trend a bit when I was younger, because I also did something that was a little bit crazy in my day, which is as an associate, I had my first child. And I remember thinking to myself at the time that, you know, no one really did that, right? There, there were some people, but no one really had, as women, no one really had kids when they were associates because, you know, it's still that stigma was there. Well, now she's not going to put in the long hours or there, there goes Maria. Boy, she was talented. You know, and that stuff happened. It was, it was definitely whispered. I definitely heard it happen. But, 
you know, I think back to myself and I, and I look around at some of my peers who didn't make that decision, right? And now I'm in a very different boat, right? They've got kids that are four and I've got a daughter that's a teenager, right? And it's, it's interesting. It's different. It was my life choice, but it worked out really well for me. I decided to do something that wasn't exactly air quote on trend. Now, did that mean I made partner just as fast as everyone else? Well, no, I, maybe I lost a year there, right? But is it really a year lost, right? Because now I look at myself and I say, boy, I still got where I got incredibly quickly. And it was pivoting. It was taking chances. It was doing things that somewhat bucked the trend. And that's something I'm very, very proud of and something I would certainly tell myself if I was still 27 to keep doing. I think the advice I would give people on this topic, and we mentioned this before, is yes, you have to advocate for yourself, but I think you also have to keep an open mind. And Careers are not linear. I mean, they might be for some people, but I think that's the exception and not the rule. And being open to other opportunities, letting people know that you're open to other opportunities um, is just, in the end, it's going to help you. I mean, any, any job you take, whether it's viewed as a promotion or a lateral move, or sometimes even taking a step back to do something that you don't really know and you want to learn about, it's going to make you a better professional. It's going to make you a more interesting person. You're going to have a lot of other experiences. It's going to broaden your network. And so I always encourage people, especially, um, you know, younger people who are earlier in their career, you know, don't be afraid to, to move around and, and make change. And I, I think historically, you know, many people went to one company, they worked there their whole career, they went to one law firm, they stayed there their whole career. But you see with the younger generations that there's a lot more movement on resumes now. And before that used to be frowned upon. Well, why is this person moving around? You know, can they not hold down a job? Um, are they too antsy and want change, you know, too quickly? But I just think it's evidence that young, the, the, the younger generations, you know, they like to learn. They're exposed to so much more with, you know, computers and iPads and iPhones, and there's so much information out there. And I, I, I think people just, they like to learn. And so they're more open to moving around and trying different things. And at the end of the day, you know, when I look back on my career, which was not linear at all, every single thing I did, I learned from something from that I use in my job now at AIG. And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it would, you know, come back and be helpful to me, you know, 15 years later, 25 years later. But there's so many days where I sit back and I'm like, wow, you know, if I had not taken on that assignment, when I was at Marsha McLennan, or had I not done that extra rotation when I was at Davis Polk, you know, I would never have known anything about this topic. And now I actually know enough that I feel comfortable talking about it or working on it. And so all these things, you know, it's, I always, I refer people always to the famous uh, Steve Jobs commencement speech at Stanford University, where he talked about connecting the dots over the course of your life, where you do all these things and you don't really know why in the moment or why certain people have come into your life when they did. And then, you know, later you look back and you start connecting the dots and you realize like, wow, if I had not done that job, I probably wouldn't have gotten this job. Or had I not gone and, you know, met with that person and built a relationship with that person, it wouldn't have led me to someone else that then opened up a door for me. And so, 
everything you do is an opportunity to learn and establish a network and build relationships. And so I think just not thinking too linear, linearly uh, is important. There are a lot of different ways to become a law firm partner. There are a lot of different ways to become you know, a general counsel at a, at a Fortune 500 company. There's, there isn't just one path. But what's important is that you really dedicate yourself to learning, always learning, and that you build relationships and you build lasting relationships and you just never know what's going to happen down the road. But I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason. So I always encourage people to take a leap of faith sometimes. That is tremendous advice. And I, I love hearing it. And I love that we're going to be able to share it with people. It's I found it to be an interesting phenomenon, the way people can be influenced by their coworkers' behavior, um, their colleagues' behavior, and can fall into that, that rut of doing basically what everybody else is doing. So both of you clearly have, have cut your own path and it's quite admirable. I'd like to thank you both for being here today and taking the time to put this episode together. I hope that we'll be able to see each other in real life in the near future. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I love this stuff and I think it's so important. So happy to contribute. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I always like to talk about this topic and, and I always learn something. So I learned a few things today too uh, from you, Kristen, and also Maria. So thank you for including me. I appreciate it.